0: Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years, I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I have been looking forward to this podcast for quite a while. Uh, I have the joy of introducing, probably hardly needs an introduction to many of you, but but to having Philip Yancey on Faith Conversations. I talked with him many years ago in my old radio uh, job with Midday Connection. Some of you might remember that. I think the book we talked about was Soul Survivor. And, you know, I I think back to that, I was a different person. I don't think I fully grasped soul survivor back then. (laughs) And uh, so I'm really delighted to be able to talk with Philip today. He is the author of 25 books. Um, Wow. I'll just say, wow. I think of like two that I've written and I go, no more, no more. I can't. (laughs) 25. But he's a Philip Yancey is a beautiful writer, and I will say this now on the front end. Often I will read his books with um, a dictionary in one hand because he uses language so beautifully, and I'll run across words with some regularity that I am less familiar with. So um, all that to say, I am delighted to have Philip Yancey on the podcast. So welcome to Faith Conversations, Philip.
1: Thank you, Anita. And I'm I'm glad it was Soul Survivor that brought us together last time because it it goes with the book we're talking about. It's kind of my, my intellectual biography, the people who helped form me. And now I'm telling all the real personal juicy secrets of my life. So.
0: <laughs> well, and isn't that interesting? I, I was so excited when I saw you were um, putting out a memoir and I did not know much of your story at all. And I have to say this I listened to your story on audiobook that's how mm. I read your book I love it when the author reads their uh, their own writing and you were the reader of your memoir I'm so glad and oh and it was so good <laughs> I have to say the book was good but your reading of it and the things that you put into it like accents here and there you know mm. and oh so so much I highly recommend people listen to this on audiobook um, a lot, you know, if you read along, but it's so good to hear you read it. Um, your thoughts on on doing the audiobook, what what was that experience like for you? And have you read your other books on audiobook, or has that been outsourced to someone else?
1: I haven't read that many of them. maybe maybe five of the twenty five. Okay, It's hard work. It yes, takes it, is. it is. Three or four days, and I don't have a particularly strong voice, and I come home exhausted. Well, first I stopped by Dairy Queen or Baskin <laughs> Robbins and get some ice cream just to soothe That's my right. throat after talking all day. But uh, I figure there are some actors who make their living and are good at that. But on a memoir, particularly, it's, it's my story and I know the people and I, I want the inflections and the emphasis to go exactly where it, it went when I first heard those words.
0: Love that. And that was my experience hearing it. You know, you, yes, exactly. You know where to put the emphasis. I'm so curious, uh, have you, how long have you known? I'll ask it that way. How long have you known that you would likely write a memoir and why now?
1: I've known for probably 30 years that Mm -hmm. I should write my story someday. Then in nineteen or in 2006, I had this accident that was life-threatening, and I was li- I had a broken neck. I was lying there strapped to a bodyboard, thinking about, what have I not done yet that I'd like to do? And that's when I really got serious. I need to dive into this project and start accumulating notes, interview people, and ordering what I want to say in a memoir. And then I've spent the last three years, actually doing it and interestingly a lot of things that were going on in the 1960s when i was living when i was coming of age are being repeated now yes so we, we you know we thought the civil rights movement well that solved the legal issues it's just a matter of kind of cleaning up and and being more loving to each other and Mike, and now we're right back yelling at each other across picket lines and protests filling the streets in a very, very divided country, very, very divided church, much mm-hmm. more political and much more divisive than anything I knew politically growing up. So I think the timing is is good because it seems like every 50, 60 years in the United States, we kind of go back over the same issues over and over. We don't really solve them. We just kind of bring them to the, <sighs> to the surface. And there are a lot of parallels between my my era, the 1960s, and what's
0: going on now. What what do you think will change that pattern? I think that's an astute observation, certainly. But yeah, what do you think could change that pattern or would or might?
1: It's hard to say. My first response would be strong moral leadership. Mm -hmm. So I think back, Martin Luther King Jr., Mm -hmm he was so prescient in uh, saying changing the laws is not enough. You can pass laws to keep white people from lynching black people, but you can't make them love. And, And our real goal is the beloved community and seeing people as individuals made in the image of God. I mean, that was so powerful. And then of course he got his life cut off and Abraham Lincoln was the same way, because uh, a lot of people in the North were calling for revenge and reparations. And, you know, we've got the South, we're trampling on them. So let's go finish it off. And he said, no, we're not going to put these people in jail. We're, we're going to put down their weapons and we're going to treat them with humanity and try to build our country back again as a unified country. And then, of course, his life was cut, cut short. So he wasn't able to completely realize that dream. And I wonder some of these people that have the exactly right spirit, and then we just kill them, <laughs> we knock them off, yeah. and they're never able to finish what they started. Mm.
0: Strong moral leadership and and, and I think um, it also makes me think um, strong mor- moral constituents in the yeah, <laughs> in, right you know in the in the country as well. Sometimes I think. Oh, um, how uh, sometimes I have the thought: What, what does my not opinion? What, what can I do that matters? What can I do besides writing my elected officials? What else can I do? Um, and and there is that sense of helplessness. But um, yeah, maybe this is moving us off track. But I, it's it's something that this is an issue that I felt came up for me as I listened to your memoir, but let, let's, let's move back earlier in your life. Um, Philip, one of the things that you talk about, um, is the South, the kind of South, the kind of, uh, prejudiced and bigoted South that you were raised in. I mean, that was just part and parcel of everyday life. Some of it was because of the era. Some of it was where you were born and some of it was, um, who was around you at the time. It's always interesting to me, though, to see and to find out what happened that shifted a person. And so go, go back to those early days. What, what kind of questions did you start asking or thinking about as you watched what was happening around you and the uh, just the words that were hurled toward African-American people in the sphere where you were?
1: Interestingly, the degree of prejudice was directly related to the percentage of minorities. So Mississippi had something like 45% or something. Alabama had 40% African-American. Georgia, where I lived, was more like in the 30s. And, And you could go from Georgia to Alabama and Mississippi, and it got meaner and meaner and meaner. And if you doubt that, just read a book that was very formative for me in high school, Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin. This uh, devout Catholic uh, journalist actually took chemicals to change his skin dark. And, And then he just describes the way he's treated. One day, because he's white, he's treated with respect. He can go anywhere. Nobody questions him. The next day, the very same person is treated like an animal, spit on Uh, has to step off a sidewalk to let white people pass and is denied entrance to restaurants, bathrooms, uh, can't get a drink of water. And that's that's a bit of the environment I was raised in. And the saddest thing is that the church was part of it. My church, which uh, had some very good qualities, but they refused admittance to any black people, any African-Americans. They actually printed up cards that the deacons would give out at the door if any if anyone would dare to enter and later they softened a little bit they would let, let them attend but they wouldn't let them join the church they had to sit in a special section and i tell the story of, of one person who tried to join he liked the church he applied for membership liked their bible teaching and he was refused he was a student at carver bible institute and they refused to let him in. His name is, is uh, Tony Evans. He's a mega church pastor in Dallas with about 10,000 people in his church and runs a very effective city ministry there. We were right at the, at the cusp of change. And some sociologists look back and say, well, the time was ripe for change. It, it sure, surely wasn't ripe in the people I knew. We didn't, mm. we didn't like it. Uh, we, we liked things the way we, the way they were where black people uh, were kept separate and we didn't really mix that much. It was a very segregated city. And when I was growing up, you're know, you a kid, you hear things in church, you hear things in school, everybody thinks the same thing. And then later you find out some of these things were wrong. And the the big turning point for me on the race issue was when I got a fellowship in, in late high school years at the Communicable Disease Center, now called the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And I studied up because I knew my teacher was this renowned biochemist from an Ivy League school, and I wanted to impress him. He's going to be my mentor all summer. And the door opens. I meet him for the first time, and it's, it's a Black man. It's African-American. And my church had told me that people of color were cursed by God. They could never rise above a certain stature of education and politics and everything, never be a CEO of a company. And alarm bells went off because Dr. Cherry, which was his his name, Dr. Cherry defied those things that I had been taught. And it's, it's it's important that we get things right. That became a crisis of faith for me because I started thinking, if the church is wrong about race, maybe they're wrong about the Bible, about Jesus, maybe they're wrong about everything. And I went through a period where i just suspended my faith for a few years as i tried to sort those things out and that can be a real wake up call i i feel for kids today uh, growing up the issues and some of them are the same and some of them are different so we've got a lot of kids who are turned off when they go to college and they find out their churches were anti science right and even even some of the divisions over masking and vaccines and You know, if a church takes a really strong pounding the pulpit stance on one of those things, and later you look back and say, "What was that about?" That's there's nothing in the Bible about that. It can really prompt a crisis of faith.
0: You know, you at this point we're just talking about you and some of your thoughts and experience. But you grew up with a brother, Mm. and you grew up uh, largely in a single parent home. Your your father died when you were, um, how how old, um,
1: one year old. Yeah. I thought it was
0: even, yeah. Just barely over a year. I knew it was in that range. And, uh, but when did you find out the real truth about how he died? Because that I'm wondering if that also added to the crisis of faith. (laughs) I don't know. Mm.
1: Well, you're right. It did. I was 18, when I found out the real story, I, I, obviously I knew my father died. I, I had no conscious memory of him, and we had this story of uh, this young man in the Navy who became converted, had a remarkable testimony, converted at Pacific Garden Mission up in Chicago, where we hmm. both used to live. Wow! Yeah. And uh, and then he contracted polio and died. I knew that, of course, but when I was 18, I was going through a scrapbook showing my girlfriend who became my wife, showing her different clippings about photos of the ancestors and who the Yanceys are, and this piece of newsprint fell out of the the scrapbook at my grandparents' house that I'd never seen, and it was an article in the Atlanta Constitution, major newspaper there. I recognized the picture. It was my mother, a much younger version of her, feeding my father who was paralyzed from polio. And the story was their trust and faith healing. He had been in this iron lung for two months, and it was not a comfortable thing. It was Mm -hmm. noisy and and just an awful situation. He didn't get very good treatment in this charity hospital. So a group of Christians who were planning to support them as missionaries in Africa got together and prayed and decided it could not possibly be God's will for him to to die. Hmm. Why would God take someone, quote, take someone who is just 23 years old, who had a very bright prospect of a future ahead of him? Why would God do that? So they became convinced that he would be healed. Hmm. So convinced that against medical advice, they removed him from the Iron lung. And when the article was written, it looked pretty good. He thought he was was getting some movement back in his toe and was so much more comfortable in this little clinic rather than in the big hospital. But I looked at the date, and it happened to be nine days before he died. Mm. And here is a story I had never never heard, but later I filled in the blanks because my mother, who of course was one of those people who participated in that, I'm sure she felt some guilt. She felt disappointment. She felt, probably felt betrayal by God. She was trusting her future. And then boom, the future fell apart. But in her theology, couldn't really feel disappointment or anger at God. Um, so she took it out in other ways. She took it out by deciding her two sons would fulfill her dream for her husband, which was taken away. And... That started a motif in our lives that turned, turned very sour mm. because when we didn't seem to be on that direct path, she became more and more frantic and a, a solemn vow of giving us to God ended up being more like a curse. Mm. You either do this or God is going to crush you. And we lived under that curse. And my brother in many ways was broken by that curse.
0: Yeah. Yeah one of the questions that arose in me as i read your memoir or listened to it i how did you handle writing the difficult parts about your story that included people who are still living mm-hmm. you know i i i have friends that say you know my book my story and, and others who say, no, you've got to run everything past someone, pe- people, when it's a memoir, before you print it. What, what are your thoughts on that? What did you do? How did you handle that?
1: Well, that's by far the hardest part of writing this, this particular book. I waited a long time. I'm 72. And uh, my mother is one of the characters in the book. She's now 97. She's still living. Wow. And... And there are two ways you can you can approach that. One way, uh, Anne Lamott, who's a funny Christian <laughs> writer, says, well, if you don't like the way I wrote about you, you should have behaved better. Yes, <laughs> you know? That's right. Oh, I remember that it's, quote. <laughs> it's kind of cavalier. Another way, uh, and a person who was very helpful to me was a man named Frederick Beekner, who's still living, and a great, great writer. And the defining event of his life was his father's suicide. I think Fred was 12 or something like that. But he was never allowed to talk about it, never came up, and never allowed to write about it. And he was—he had been writing for, I'm, I'm guessing, maybe 20 years and had never written about this moment, and, and partly in fear of his mother and her reaction. And finally, he decided, I, I don't have the right to write about I, I do have the right to write about my father's death and how it affected me. Not how it affected my mother, not some mm. of these other things, but I've, I've got my life. That's the one thing I have. You can't take it away from it from yeah. me. And you mm. went on to write a book called listening to your life. And that's, mm. that's the one thing we writers have. My life is different than anybody else's. Otherwise I shouldn't be writing because why, why would we need two of us? <laughs> yeah. And, and that was helpful. And I, I tried to be compassionate toward my mother and and careful. And I just um, I just say very, very strongly, this is my perspective. It would your perspective would be very different. And we'd have to have everybody's perspective to find out what objective truth is, but this is how it affected me. And I'm I'm trying to be faithful to the scenes that I described. They happened. They happened as I remember them from my perspective. Right. And just, just try to have integrity in the way I portray them. Yeah.
0: Did she, has she read the memoir?
1: She hasn't. She has, she can't really uh, read anymore. She has macular degeneration. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I'm sure she'll hear, hear about it from some people. She's got some living relatives and some people who, who know her. Uh, there haven't been any problems so far. The book's been out for at least a month. And uh, we're in regular contact and there's, there's no big rift at this point.
0: Uh, what about your brother, Marshall?
1: My brother. Has, yeah.
0: Has he read, would he, he read it or.
1: He did. He, he read did. it in, in several versions. The first one he just sobbed all the way through it. And oh, wow. the wow. comment he made it, he made was this helps validate my life.
0: Oh, Because
1: I... he's always been the the black sheep, the prodigal son. Okay. And this gives some reason behind it. I can and see that. Yeah, what did you
0: think? What did, when he said that, I mean, what? Yeah.
1: I had been afraid just when you tell intimate stories about anyone. And, and I, I told a lot of things that he may not prefer everybody in the world. know, but he said, no, it happened. It's true. You were fair. So Thank you. And he had kind of he had lived under this curse, really. And the fact that I identified it and stuck up stuck up for him and, yeah. and didn't dismiss him as the bad guy. Um, I think meant a lot to him. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, Anita, there has been some progress in in our little family twice mm-hmm. since I turned in the book manuscript. Twice I've gotten them on the phone together. Uh, on a three-way conversation. The first time either has heard the other's voice in 51 years. Imagine. No that.
0: way, 51. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
1: And, you know, it didn't go especially well. There wasn't any wonderful kiss and makeup scenes. Mm, but right, right. They're at least talking. And then to my astonishment, I never could have predicted this, to my astonishment, my brother on his own, without any prompting from me, wrote a three-word card to my mother and the three words were I forgive you.
0: Oh wow. Which
1: is it's huge. It's just amazing. Wow. And and maybe the memoir had something to do with that. I I hope so. So uh, the story is not over even since I turned in the book.
0: Wow. You know which you know as I'm hearing you share that um, it certainly makes you think uh, glad you didn't wait until all parties had passed away before he wrote that, I mean, right? <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: and I, I thought that a lot, I, at one point I thought, well, I'll, I'll uh, choose a publisher and just write into the manuscript or to the contract, this can be published after the death of so-and-so. And then I thought, well, is that fair? Hmm. Because now at least my mother, if she doesn't like something can say, well, Philip, he makes up stuff, you can't trust him yeah he can she can refute it but uh if i waited until all parties were dead they couldn't do that um uh, they couldn't even disagree with me
0: <laughs> yeah i i wrote i mean it re- was really memoir it wasn't um promoted in that way but a book um published by zondervan back in 2010 called what women tell me because a lot of women mm. would email me from the radio show and and um and it was kind of what I never told them um, about my life. But um, I had someone say, well, if that's how you remember it, that's not, <laughs> it happened. Mm-hmm. you know, and, right. and there's, that certainly can happen, but you, you know, you, you if you stay true to how you were affected, how that's so interesting. I love hearing that story that, yeah, this, the full story is not yet written and that There's been some movement in your, in your family. Wow. Um, One of my questions also, Philip, is a, a life lived. There's so much that could be included. I mean, how do you choose? And, and did you already know before writing and putting, you know, all the work in collecting the stories, et cetera, did you already know that there was a a certain theme to your life that was going to come through. And I, and I want to ask you what, what you would say that theme is, or did that theme emerge as you gathered the stories and information?
1: It did emerge. I, I felt like I was given a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, Mm. all the little stories, all the memories and, but no picture on the cover (laughs) and nothing to guide me. And so it's hard finding these, all you have is the shape and finding ways to put them together. But gradually after many, many hours, a picture emerges. Mm -hmm. And for me, this became kind of the prequel or the backstory to other books I've written because no matter where I start or what I'm writing about, it, it tends to revolve around one of two themes, theme of suffering in the mm-hmm. theme of grace, yes. And suffering, I now see it as a gift that I was put down in um, in an extreme environment, an extreme uh, toxic church environment, and an extreme family environment. It's a gift because I survived. It wasn't a gift for my brother, but it was a gift for me as a writer because I I often write about that topic of suffering. Can can wounds be healed? Well, they they don't go away. You still right. have scars, but they can be healed. And I, <laughs> I had some pretty severe ones, and can write about that. And then the topic of grace, because that's what the church is supposed to be all about, but sometimes it's not. Yeah. And people tell me their their sad church stories, and very often I say, "Oh, it's it's worse than that. Let me tell you about."
0: <laughs> oh, right, exactly. And and I and it, let me just you know, to say that tenfold, I, I I so want to commend your memoir to people because yes, I just had no idea that the toxic scenario that you were, that you grew up in and yeah.
1: But even that, what I learned, my brother helped because my brother's response was, I'm going to get as far away from that cultic group as possible. I'm going to do the opposite of everything that they believe. And he did. And it was, many of those choices were self-destructive. They didn't, they didn't help. He, he went for freedom. But often when people choose freedom, they choose addictions that become a kind of slavery, which he did. And, and I learned too, um, it would be a bad trade to sacrifice a potential to have a relationship with the God of the universe because... Of the way you got treated in church. I I understand church problems. Believe me, I understand them. But there's a reason God created it, and, and we're called to be part of it and to represent what God is like. And part of why I wrote this memoir is to say the church doesn't always do that. And when they don't do that, people suffer. They suffer deeply. We need to get back to what we we're called to do to. Show Jesus' attitude of grace and love and forgiveness and and unity and and inclusion. And if we don't get that right, we 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 chase people away from God. We misrepresent God.
0: I think of uh, even when you talked about the wounds, it made me think of Henry Now hmm. his book and his phrase, you know, wounded healer. And we all can be that if we, depending on what we choose. Um, I mean, we're all wounded in some way, but we can choose to walk down that path as a wounded healer, um, or not. Right.
1: Yeah, you're, you're right. I love that phrase. And and Henry was so open and self-aware about his own weaknesses. And yet, uh, you'd never know that actually, if you just read his, his devotional books, or if you heard him speak, but, um. Underneath, it was a struggle, but it was a struggle that God used to make him a quintessential wounded healer, actually.
0: Philip, I think it's interesting reading your story that, um, I mean, you could have taken a, a path similar to your brother. I mean, you, you did have a period of time where you um, and maybe you said this earlier, kind of put the, put the church on hold or put Christian yes. things on hold. And there was a lot, um, at my perception anyway, a lot going on up in your head, mm-hmm. um, that, that wasn't necessarily coming out externally. You were, you know, just going through the motions, maybe, maybe not even that, but, um, people that didn't know you well, maybe did not know what was, what was going on up in your head, but what was the shift? What was the change? What, or what kept you connected to God?
1: I did have a dramatic conversion experience that I wasn't really seeking and didn't really want at the time, but it happened. And I I had to be honest about that. And it changed everything. But then there there came a period, kind of a cocoon period of my faith, where it was just taking shape. And I I was very fortunate. First, I I got a job, my first job ever, at Campus Life magazine, which was part of Youth or Christ. And it was kind of a freewheeling, fun place uh, in the early 1970s. And we probably were given way too much freedom, but uh, it was so different than the oppressive controlling atmospheres that I had grown up in.
0: Well, and, and I—I'll I, 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 let me just say that I read Campus Life in those oh, years. Okay. And uh, so I'm really grateful for the latitude that you were given.
1: <laughs> oh, good. Very good. And then just after that, I, I wrote my first book, Where is God When It Hurts? And in the process of doing that, I met this man named Dr. Paul Brand, who became a father figure to me. My father died when I was a year old. And he was a man very different than me. I'm a grew up southern redneck fundamentalist and then trying to find my way who should I be and I met this orthopedic surgeon from England who had spent his life in India Uh, you know what a mutton Jeff combination but we got along he was the most brilliant person I've ever been around and the most truly holy person Mm -hmm. he had turned down opportunities to be the head of orthopedics at Oxford University Hospital and Stanford Mm. to work among the lowest people on the entire planet. These were people in India, many of them in the untouchable caste who had leprosy. They Mm. they were kicked out of their villages, out of their homes. And yet I saw, I had never met anyone with more joy, with more fulfillment, lived in this hot environment uh, where life was hard. And yet he, he learned every butterfly, every insect, every plant, every bird. And he just he embodied what Jesus said. Jesus said that you don't find your life by acquiring things more and more. That's, that's the American way, but that's not the Jesus way. You actually find your life paradoxically by giving it away in service to others. And I saw that lived out. And I would encourage people, especially young people, who are in some, some area, kind of like I was at the time, just trying to figure out things, to find a really healthy person, somebody you want to be like, and hang around them, find a mentor, somebody that you can, you can open up to. And it, it really only takes one person who is truly a follower of Jesus for you to realize there's something worth pursuing there. There's something worth it.
0: Nice. Uh, You know, that makes me think back to my days working um, for Moody Radio and with Midday Connection. And along came Gail and Gordon McDonald as guests on my radio show. And I started having them on monthly. I knew the audience was benefiting greatly, but I was benefiting so much with the before the program conversations and the, after the program mm. conversations, and they just poured into me um, and built me up in ways that I didn't even recognize or realize at the time. So I, I love that, that recommendation. Um, mm. it, it can be life-changing for someone.
1: Yeah, it really can. I, I remember speaking at Dr. Brand's funeral, he died in 2003 and I said, we had a strange exchange because I gave words to his faith no one had ever taken the time. He had given chapel talks and things like that, but had never written them down. And we we came up with three books together. But I said, in in the process, he gave faith to my words because I could write with integrity about him. And I needed that period. Mm. Well, long before I could write a book about Jesus or about prayer or Mm. any of those things, I wouldn't have been ready at all. I I needed that cocoon period to let faith take shape.
0: Uh, That's Beautiful. I love that. Um, where you know what do you, what do you if we, uh, authors are always working on the next thing. <laughs> My guess is you're already writing or have maybe already written. I don't know the next thing. Where where does an author like Philip Yancey go after writing uh, a memoir?
1: I haven't started a new project. I would like to write a book about some of the things I've learned about writing. Oh. I've spoken at writers' conferences and, and seminars and webinars, things like that. And I'd like to get that down just to, to be kind of a mentor to, to newcomers in the craft. Nice. And probably I'm, I'm not going to tackle some huge, big, big new theme. I've, I've been through the things that I care about and wanted to record, but I have also done a lot of talks and a lot of exploration on, on, uh, different topics. And probably we would just compile some of those and, Mm -hmm. and, um, slow down. I've slowed down a a little bit in the last couple of years and I need some more.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, memoir and this yours, especially, and I don't even know if I've given the name where the light fell. Um, Is kind of a capstone type thing, I think, Hmm. especially for an author like you, who has how many millions in print? Where did I read something recently? Like 150, 175? I don't know. No, 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 no. So many- The
1: last issue, uh, the last number I heard was 17, which is still a lot. Thank you, thank you readers. (laughs) I'm gonna
0: dig around because I think it's more than that, but anyway. Okay, okay. Uh, But a lot, a lot of uh, books in print, so it feels like this beautiful capstone kind of project. But um, I have to ask, and I remember listening and hearing the phrase, go past my ears, where the light fell. I I heard that in the book. Where did that name come from?
1: It's from a quote by St. Augustine, who said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I could look on where the light fell. And that was my story. I was so immersed in, saturated by religion growing up. Uh, there's no way God could have reached me through a gospel tract or a Billy Graham mm. sermon or something like that. I, I could quote those things. I, I gave them myself, but I could no longer tell what was real and what was fake. And then God gradually softened me by three things, by the beauties of nature mm. and music, classical music in my case, and romantic love. Mm. And I realized when I experienced those things that the church had truly misrepresented God to me. My image of God coming out of that church was this cosmic bully who was looking to break people, keep them from enjoying life. And I found exactly the opposite. And I wanted to get to know the creator behind those things where the light fell. And gradually I was able to trace those rays back to the one, to the sun, Mm. the source.
0: I, I recently read a, a short um, poem or meditation uh, that Meister Eckert wrote. This has been translated, hmm. but it talks about, you know, my life is like a page on which so much is already written. Hurts and joys and the tumble of fears and uncertainties. What you want of me, God, is that I clean the slate, emptying it of all this to make room for the freedom of nothingness. Hmm. where alone you, my God, have room to grow. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which I did not anticipate that final turn. You know, I'm so used to the language of me growing or, uh, you know, right, right humanity growing, but where we have the open space for God to inhabit, for God to grow. And I, your, I think your comment about image of God, our image of God, um has been so contained um and there was a book years ago yeah there's
1: a book years ago by is it jb phillips or or, no it was yeah your god is too small your god is too small that's jb
0: phillips yes
1: yeah okay
0: yeah oh so interesting and and that's what i felt reading your memoir i i could you could Follow the thread of the expansion of God and your view of God mm. in your life over mm. the, the, the course of a lifetime.
1: And what I'd like to, what I hope the memoir does, and one thing I learned about memoirs is that they they teach you as much about you as a reader as you learn about the writer, because they keep summoning up your own parallels to Amen. the writer's experience. And what I hope happens there are a lot of people listening to you I know who have wounds from their family and wounds from their church and the family wounds I guess I I've learned because mine was pretty extreme that they they can be healed it, it, the healing process is is never easy it, it often takes therapy it takes help you know but um the promise we have in Romans 8 is not that only good things will happen, but in Dallas Willard's words, nothing irredeemable can happen to us, nothing that cannot be redeemed. And I I, I believe my story is a redemptive story, thanks to God. Yes. And both the extremes of the family and the extremes of the church. And I want to give hope to people who, who can't see that. They're not looking that far over the horizon yet. I'm 72 now, I'm able to look back and I can see how these things do work together for good, and even for my good. And at the end of it, um, I mean, you were shocked by some of the things you learned about me, but at the end of it, I I really don't have regrets. I, I feel nothing got wasted. God used the good, the bad, and the ugly yeah. to to form the person I am now. And and God's a master artist who can find a way to do that.
0: Wow. I can't find a better way to wrap up our conversation than what you just said. That's beautiful. I am a big fan of your writing and of your memoir Where the Light Fell just beautifully done and what a what a joy to have you on the podcast. Thank you Philip.
1: Oh, I've enjoyed it, Anita. I'm glad to be reacquainted after all these
0: years. (laughs) That's great. And really, folks, I, I encourage you to grab a copy of Where the Light Fell. And as I always say, keep the conversation going.